welcome back to a new episode of Beyond Texas. I'm your host, W.F. Strong. Thanks for downloading this first podcast of the new year, 2022. In just a few minutes, I'll be talking to former NPR reporter and now author of her captivating new book, Carville's Cure, Leprosy, Stigma, and the Fight for Justice. It is about America's only national treatment facility for leprosy that existed for over a hundred years on the rural banks of the Mississippi River in Louisiana. I came upon this book by accident one Sunday morning six weeks ago. I came across an article about a small, what was called then, leper colony in Massachusetts, more properly called a leprosarium. It was on Pinnakee's Island in Buzzards Bay on 75 acres. According to a fine article written by Joe Silva, state hospitals simply weren't interested then in housing those afflicted with leprosy because the trustees were more concerned about the optics of of housing lepers so close to communities, and that would hurt their bottom line. So Massachusetts purchased Pinnakee's Island for $25,000 and rounded up the lepers, as they called them, and isolated them on the island. Dr. Parker and his wife, a couple with Mother Teresa-like charity within them, gave up an upper-class lifestyle to move to the island and care for these unfortunate souls so persecuted by society. He not only cared for them, but became their most passionate advocate. He had to fight hard, and particularly he had to fight Lieutenant Governor and eventually Governor Channing Cox to keep the colony open. They may have been ostracized, but at least they had each other. For 15 years, from 1905 to 1921, Dr. Parker managed to fight off various officials and eventually even the governor himself to keep it open. And once there was a national leprosarium created in Louisiana, the governor moved swiftly to close down Pinnakee's Island and move the patients to Carville. Dr. Parker's patients didn't want to go. They had each other and a happy home where they were. But Governor Cox wanted to say good riddance to what he considered human trash and transfer them all with all speed, which he did. But that wasn't enough for him. He was a vengeful man. Since Dr. Parker had put up a hard fight, he withheld his last few months' pay and canceled his retirement package from the state. Cox should go down as one of the 20th century's consummate asses for that alone. But he went even further. He told the legislature that if they tried to overrule him by special edict, he'd veto it, and he'd politically punish any who crossed him. Well, it was that saga that made me want to look into the leprosarium in Carville and to learn how it came to be and how it fared in its long history. That brought me to Pam Fessler's four-and-a-half-star book on Amazon and the conversation I'm about to share. I wanted to begin with uh, the discussion of leprosy in the Bible and how often leprosy appears in the Bible, and Jesus uh, did some healing of people with leprosy. But uh, that seems to be, at root, a kind of cause of the fear. You know, the modern fear of, of leprosy is the biblical connection. Right, right. And I, th- I think that that actually, you know, drove or has driven a lot of our um, concept 
of leprosy, um, which we today called Hansen's disease. Um, and the interesting thing is scholars now think that what is described as leprosy in the Bible was not, in fact, leprosy at all, or what we know as leprosy today, um, but that it was another skin disease. But through, you know, over the centuries and because of translations, it acquired the word leprosy. And so it was seen as a sign of sin, you know, that, that God was punishing people uh, for some kind of transgression with this terrible disease. And that's why people had to be, you know, sent out from the community, banished from the community until they were either cured or forgiven. Um, and 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 it, it carried on this connotation for centuries and it still has it today. So people sometimes think that the reason you got leprosy or got this disease was because you had done something wrong and that it was the person's, the patient's fault. And that, so that, that, that I think really shaped our whole approach to this disease for which there are so many myths and, and, and stigmas and prejudices attached, many of which are wrong. Well, let's talk about some of those. Uh, what are some of the myths that are absolutely wrong? Well, well, some of them, and, and, and I found, you know, discovered some of this. I didn't know about this until I started looking into this topic. And the reason I did was because, um, as I mentioned in the book, my husband's grandfather ended up being a patient at, uh, at Carville. And one of the biggest myths <laughs> is that it's a highly contagious disease. When I, I discovered that, in fact, it's probably one of the least contagious diseases known to man, that 95% of the human race uh, is naturally immune for the disease. You know, 95 out of 100 people can't even get this. The other 5%, you don't get it easily just by, um, you know, coughing on somebody or touching somebody. It really takes long-term sustained contact with somebody who um, has the disease to potentially uh, give it to somebody else. And we even today, we don't know exactly um, uh, how people um, uh, get it. And then the other thing is that, you know, th th there's this concept, and some of this does come from the Bible and other things that have been written over the years about um, leprosy, you know, that people's limbs fall off, that their skin falls off. Um, it is a serious disease, and it can be very serious, but but people's limbs don't fall off. What happens, it's really a nerve disease. So it will cause numbness in people's extremities, in their hands and their feet. So it's very easy for uh, people who have leprosy to damage their, their, their uh, limbs and their extremities. They might um, burn themselves or cut themselves and not even know. And so that causes you know, other disease, uh, other um, uh, impairments, and they might have to have amputations. Um, uh, it, it does cause some people who have some uh, form of the disease to have these very um, uh, kind of repulsive looking nodules on their faces and the rest of their body. Some people, their noses kind of, it kind of eats away at the cartilage of their nose. But other people, can look perfectly normal and have hardly any symptoms, maybe just a few red spots. So it's really um, um, a very 
there's, there's a very big cross-section and variety of how this disease can um, evidence itself. And then the other interesting thing I found, it's very slow developing. It's probably one of the, so, so somebody might contract it, um, say, you know, one year, they might not feel symptoms for 10, 15, 20 years. And it is slowly, slowly developing. It doesn't develop quickly. Uh, like many other diseases. So those were all things that I was so shocked when I started researching this book. This predisposition or susceptibility to leprosy is uh, genetically inherited from time to time, right? Yes, that is the belief, right? That is the belief. And that's why you did see a lot of cases or still see a lot of cases within families, Right. So that that kind of spread um, helped um, perpetuate this myth that it was highly contagious because somebody would say, oh, you know, dad got leprosy and now, um, you know, the, the, the kids have leprosy. But it was really the fact that they were genetically um, uh, susceptible and that they lived in close contact with each other. So you, they had this close contact with the germ. So that's why you did see a lot of uh, families. You know, it's strange. We don't think that about cancer. You see certain cancers right. uh, in a family and you don't say, well, obviously it's contagious. You know, they're, right. they're, they passed it to each other. You know, it's, it's very, uh, it's a very illogical leap that people made. And I, I guess, because like you say, the physical disfiguration created a kind of extraordinary fear. Right, right. Because as a, you know, it, it can be quite repulsive, right? So it was frightening. And so, you know, we didn't know, science didn't know that it was not that contagious. Um, so you had this combination, especially in the United States, it was around the turn of the century between the late 1800s and the early 1900s. There was a, a recognition that germs caused diseases. There was fear of a lot of immigrants coming into the country, bringing these diseases. And leprosy kind of got caught up in that, right? And so um, that's when we got the formation of this institution uh, down in Carville, Louisiana, called, which we now call Carville, to take people who had leprosy and isolate them because there was this feeling that they were a threat to the general public and people really wanted nothing to do with them. They wanted them away as far away as possible and 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 and, and quite frankly, it didn't seem to really care what happened to them. They just wanted them shut away and um, no longer a threat. Well, before Carville was created, and we'll come to that, which was the focus of your book, what did they do about them? How did most cities, uh, towns, how did they cope with leprosy? Well, see, that's kind of the interesting thing. Even in, in, in New Orleans, which was sort of the origination of where how um, this institution began, most people stayed with their families. They were cared by their families. Um, and it was, you know, really honestly, through much of the 1800s was not considered that serious a threat, um, you know, that, that, and I think it was partly because you didn't see it spread rapidly, right? So there maybe a few people might have the disease, um, but it wasn't spreading rapidly. So people might care for, you know, the person in their community, um, 
you know, they might stay at home, they might stay away from other people, but they pretty much were cared for um, at home. It was this sort of changing attitude at the late uh, late 1800s about uh, germs and germ theory um, that kind of led to this really almost a public hysteria about diseases in general um, and, and leprosy being one of them. Well, in your book, we see hysteria everywhere. Not only the hysteria about the people who were known to have leprosy, but they didn't want a solution for it anywhere near them. Uh, like exactly. I remember they would find places that they would try to establish a hospital, and in some cases, they burned it down before they could even purchase that place. Right, right. It was it was really, you know, not in my backyard. It was. And, it was, it was yeah. NIMBY everywhere, right? <laughs> not in my and, backyard. Right. And that's why Carvel ended they ended up building this institution, you know, when they really were trying to figure out what to do with the leprosy patients in Louisiana, the only place they could find was this abandoned plantation really in a very remote area of the state along the Mississippi River, about 70 miles from um, from, from uh, New Orleans. And even then, they snuck the patients up there in the middle of the night on a barge um, because they didn't want the neighbors to find out that they were turning this into a leprosy hospital. Even even back in the 1800s, there were there were always doctors who said, you know, this is not that contagious a disease. There were some who did say it was contagious, but there were many who said, you know, I don't think this is a serious threat, and we should not we should be worried much more about all these other diseases, you know, smallpox, tuberculosis, malaria, all these other things. Um, but it was overtaken by this kind of public hysteria and 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 myth mythology about this disease. And I think going back to the religious uh, connection, you know, that in the Bible over and over again they were called unclean and they were um, sinful and, and God's judgment uh, against them and and even some of the pronouncements in the Bible that your your family will suffer from. From leprosy to the third generation, you know, those right, sort of right. curses on people. So you had a deeply religious nation with a connection to the religious text, I think, that inflamed things beyond what would have been normal because tuberculosis was far more uh, contagious. Much more contagious, right, right. Much more contagious and, and more deadly. Mm-hmm. And you smallpox, know, people- too. Right. I mean, people did not really die from leprosy. <laughs> you know, yeah. they might become disabled, but but you know, it, it, it was much rarer that they would die from the disease itself. So, when you talk in your book about the conundrum that some of the um, more progressive doctors got themselves into, because on the one hand, they wanted to say it's not that contagious, and then on the other hand, they wanted to isolate them in their own hospitals. So, which is it, doctor? Right, exactly. And so, um, and, and it's interesting, I think, you know, there were people um, in, in the medical community at the time, at the turn of the century, who thought that it actually was a good idea, even if the disease was not that serious a public health threat, that it was good to isolate these patients because they actually believed, because we, we know so little, knew so little about how it was spread, that by, by, by keeping these patients isolated, they could 
work on medical and finding some type of a cure, and then at the same time protect these patients from really the kind of very cruel world outside. But unfortunately, that whole policy of isolating only reinforced this stigma. People were like, well, if they're isolating them, there must be something we should be worried about. So it only reinforced the stigma. So it was a Dr. Dyer, was that his name? The one who right. first wanted to create the hospital in New Orleans? Right. Isidore uh, Dyer, right. He was a dermatologist. Uh, he actually became dean of the Tulane Medical School um, eventually. And and he was looking, you know, there was research that was being done around the world, um, specifically in Norway, which ha- surprisingly had very large uh, incidence of, of um, leprosy. And in Norway, they had started to isolate patients um, or bring them together into hospitals and also believing that this was a good way to stop the disease. There were even people who thought at the time that it was sexually transmitted. So they basically wanted to make sure that people didn't, who had leprosy, didn't like get married and have kids, even though that's totally not true. It's not sexually transmitted at all. Um, and in, at, at, in Norway, they started seeing a dramatic drop in cases in the late 1800s. And we now think that that's because they, people, they, they, it had been a very poor country and people were becoming healthier and, they, you know, that they were, their immune systems were getting stronger. But it was not related to the isolation, but people at the time thought it was. So Isidore Dyer saw this and said, oh, we should be doing the same thing. We can get rid of this disease. Here in Texas, where I live, a lot of people uh, are afraid of armadillos because of the leprosy that many people believe they all carry. And um, I tell them, you know, unless you're handling them and playing with them, and probably unless you're eating them, you're probably not susceptible. If they're out in your yard or whatever, you don't have to kill them because they're not going to give you leprosy by being around. Right. Am I giving good advice? Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> I have never actually seen an armadillo being from New Jersey, really? but maybe in the maybe in the zoo somewhere. But um, yeah, so 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 armadillos are one of the only um, other animals or mammals um, or, or an, animals that are sh- shown to. Um, uh, carry leprosy. And they do, in fact, it's believed that they do, in fact, um, transmit the disease to some human beings. Um, but you're right, a lot of it happens in Brazil, where people eat armadillo meat, um, which is probably, as you say, you know, the worst thing that you can do. Um, there's we still don't, as I say, don't know 100% how the disease is transmitted. There's also a belief that it could possibly be in soil in some mm-hmm. places. Um, you know, as I say, 95% of the human race is immune from the disease anyway. Um, but you don't know whether you're that 5%. So I, I do think it's probably smart not to like roll around in the dirt with an armadillo. Well, I want to come back to them in a minute because they played a part in finding treatments and cures. I suppose you can call it a cure. I know in medical standards, it's hard to 
say right. something is a cure, but uh, I find it fascinating that they were very helpful. <laughs> the armadillos are very helpful in finding uh, useful treatments. But I want to go back to Hansen. Uh, how did it become Hansen's disease? How did it get that name? So um, Gerhard Hansen was a doctor in Norway um, in the late 1800s. And he is the doctor who, as I say, there were many, many cases of leprosy in um, Norway at the time. And so he did research at a hospital in Bergen. Um, and he is the one who was who who first identified the germ, um, you know, the, the, the bacterium that that causes um, leprosy. So eventually it was named after him. And it was named after him in part because people who have leprosy um, lobbied quite hard to to change the word and description of this disease because it was so affiliated with this disease in the Bible. And so the word leper, leprosy, they really wanted to try and get um, that out of the um, common uh, lexicon. But of course, that has not actually happened. But we do, in fact, call it Hansen's disease officially today. So I'm sure in writing this book, you you met a, a lot of people with Hansen's disease. Oh, yeah. I mean, people who... Um you know, we're still patients at the Carvelis Institution in uh, in Louisiana. Uh, the federal government eventually took over and became a U.S. public health um, facility. And um, it actually still had patients living there until the last patient left 2015, believe it or mm-hmm. not. Um, 2015. Yeah. Now, the patients after a certain time, after the 1960s, people weren't forced to be there and isolated and confined against their will, which is, of course, what happened to patients earlier on. But people went there because they could get good treatment. It actually became a, you know, probably the premier hospital in the world for treating people with Hansen's disease. So um, um, I met a lot of people who were still being treated or are, are still today um, getting treatment from through with the help of the federal government. There's a na- something called the National Hansen's Disease Program that's run um, out of the uh, Department of Health and Human Services, and they have facilities and clinics around the country where people can now go get treatment. So I I met people who are currently uh, have actively have the disease, but I also met a lot of people who were patients at Carville had have long ago been cured of the disease. We could talk about that more, but that, you know, there is medication now where you can completely get rid of the the, um, germ from your body and you're no longer contagious. But they, some of them stayed living at Carville because they'd been there for decades and they had nowhere else to go. And this this was their home. a happy place for them. Oh, for some people, yes, very much so. I mean, people went there, you know, some were forced there. They were taken from their homes. They were taken from their families. They were confined behind this, you know, the, the facility is this huge 350-acre former plantation, but it had a barbed wire top fence around it and you couldn't leave. And, um, and mosquitoes. Oh, it was terrible. Right, right. It was a very swampy, hot area. Um, but But inside that world... They were with people who actually, 
this, be, as I say, became their family. There are other people who shared this same, and, and they, these people who were inside, they weren't repulsed by each other um, that they had this disease. Many of them really knew intuitively this is not a highly contagious disease. And people fell in love. There were, you know, there were men, women, children, adults. It was a whole world inside of Carville. And, you know, they, they, they people, as I say, fell in love. They weren't supposed to get married there, but some of them snuck out, got married and came back in. Some had babies. The babies were taken away and put up for adoption. Or um, The story never never quits breaking your heart, though. Oh, I know. It, it is a very tragic story. And the reason I wrote it was because, um, as I mentioned earlier, my husband's grandfather, we discovered um, many years after the fact, had contracted leprosy. He was taken away from his home uh, in the 1930s, brought down to Carville, and he died there. And my um, father-in-law, who was his son, was only a teenage boy at the time, and he never saw or heard from his father again. And he had no idea really what had happened to him. And he kept this a family secret for more than 60 years and only told us about it in 1998. And the reason he did was kept it a secret was because of the stigma. And his mother told him at the time that his father was taken away. She said, don't ever tell anybody that your father had leprosy because it will destroy the family. And they had a meat business, and I think she thought it also would destroy the meat business. Um, and so he kept it inside. And that's how great this stigma is. Um, and, and, and so when we went down, so, so when he told us this, that's when we went down and discovered that there was this hospital where the federal government basically confined these patients. And then I discovered that there were, you know, our family was one of thousands that this happened to. And there were just unbelievable stories about what this disease did to people and, and, and their families. And, 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 and is that when you decided at that moment, you said, I have to tell this story, I, I need to write this book? Yes, it was like exactly at that moment when I went there and I saw um, at that time in 1998, there were still patients there, but these were people who either had already been cured and, and had nowhere else to go or were getting treatment. So they, the patients at that point were... Um, you know, very inspiring in many ways. You know, they had shown this great resilience in fighting this disease. And, um, but then when I heard the stories, the tragedy, and then when I found out that it was not even that contagious, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that we as a society did this to so many people. And that's when I t- wanted to tell the story. Well, as I was reading the book, that's, that's why I said it, it, it never quits breaking your heart because you, you start at the beginning of where these individual stories of people that get leprosy and they're chased out of town with the torches, you know, practically. And the people say, just get out of here. Well, where do you want me to go? I don't have any food. I can't make any money. I don't care. Just go, you know, just right. go get out of here. And uh, so, so it's like a Frankenstein story, you know, the, the horror. And uh, people pushing them out wherever they are, and they, they put them into these pest homes or pest houses. Uh, right, that's what some states. Name. 
Right, 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 right. And that's what some places did. You know, you asked earlier, what did states do before Carville existed? There were these, as you say, pest houses, which were terrible places, you know, that they would, you know, just isolate people, uh, you know, who had contagious diseases. And the the patients were just kind of left on their own. I mean, they really weren't taken care of, you know, they just had to fend for themselves. And it was just like medieval times, you know, when people with, um, with, with leprosy uh, were just banished from the community or had to wear a bell around their neck so that people would know they were coming to treat human people who are, who are sick from a disease as though they were criminals. And that's exactly how people were treated. But to me, the, one of the best parts about Carville is that these patients eventually started banding together and, as I say, recognizing that there was a, quite an injustice against them. And um, especially around the 1940s when there was a, a, a cure, which was found actually at Carville, which we began um, developing, they started fighting for their rights. They started, you know, said, this is so unfair that the government is confining us and taking away our freedom, our families, even our names. People were encouraged to change their names so that, um, you know, it wouldn't cause embarrassment or shame for their families. And to me, that's the best part about that book. Just shows this incredible human resilience and, and hope and initiative. And eventually those patients won. Yeah, they did. They, they created a, a, a beautiful facility for themselves and for those who came after them. It was very exactly. impressive what they did and how they became their own political activists. You know, very, very impressive story. Yeah, there were some really sharp people there. Yeah, <laughs> but they never had to quit fighting. It was like they never. There was always some new jerk who came along who wanted to make their lives difficult again. You know, just uh, here they are. They've got two hundred people left in Carville who are living their lives at, uh, well and hoping to live out their lives there because they've gotten accustomed to this institution that they have largely molded for themselves. And right. then someone comes along and says, well, okay, it's time for you people to go. You know, we need to cut the budget. Y'all need to go find homes, whatever you need to do, go. And so right. that's what I'm saying. It, 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 you have great uh, admiration for their resilience, but you say, my God, how much can a people take? Right. And they had, you know, this was in the 60s when you met in 70s and they had protests, you know, in their wheelchairs and they had signs and they basically said, you know, you took us from our family once. You're not going to take us from our new family again, because this was their new family, um, the people who lived in Carville. And they had um, we haven't talked about this yet, but, you know, they had they had, um, you know, dances and bands and plays. They had this incredible newspaper called The Star that started as an in-house publication that the federal government helped fund and said, okay, yeah, you can have a newspaper. And initially that newspaper, you know, was just talking about things like what was on the menu for Sunday or what movies they might be be seeing, but eventually became this uh, platform for the patients to start writing articles saying, why are we being confined here? Why are people who have other diseases that are much more contagious allowed to be outside and we are stuck here? And um, that 
got the attention of a lot of people outside of Carville and generated really this extraordinary movement to free the patients. What was the name of the guy that uh, was in the army and he they moved him out to around Seattle, I believe, but he, he's the one who took the train and-, and Oh, made, John Early? Yes, yes, John Early. Tell that yeah. story. He, he did some really impressive work. <laughs> yeah, so this was before the federal government took over uh, Carville. And uh, so he, John Early, was a, a veteran of the Spanish-American War. Um, started. He, he went to Washington to um, pick up his pension at one point. This was in 1908. And he found, he, he started getting, he had like what he thought was a rash on his head. So he called a doctor in. Doctor came and didn't really know what it was. And Early just kind of jokingly say, hey, what do I have, doc, leprosy? Started the doctor thinking, uh-oh, maybe he has leprosy. And um, it, it, it happens to be pretty endemic in areas like in Cuba and the Philippines where this man had been. So of course, then the doctor thought, oh, I bet he picked it up there. They confined him um, immediately, he, this was in Washington, D.C., they they took this guy, John Early, they brought him to the banks of the Potomac in an isolated area of the city. They stuck him in a quarantine tent because they didn't know what to do with him because there was no national hospital or policy on what to do with people with leprosy. Well, people started freaking out all over. I mean, hundreds of people would come to what, to look at the Leper, I'll use that word, leper. Um, and they confined him there for months. And, and, and eventually they let his wife and child join him in a house, but they built a brick wall down the center of the house. He had to stay on one side and they stayed on the other. I mean, this is just, it was absurd. Anyway, the story of John Lilly goes on for years and years and years and nobody knows what to do with him. Eventually, as you say, he gets confined in Seattle. Then he comes back. He escapes and he emerges in Washington, D.C. at the fanciest hotel in Washington where the vice president is actually living and um, and a bunch of senators. He calls in the press, believe it or not, and he said, I just want everybody to know that a leper, he called himself a leper at the time, uh, is right here mingling with all these fancy people. He said, this country needs to do something about how you deal with people with leprosy. And that day, three members of Congress went to the floor of the House and introduced legislation to create a national leprosarium. And that was the beginning of what became uh, Carville. There are so many extraordinary stories in the story of Carville, the, you know, the individual people and what people put up with. And as I say, you know, it, it's not all doom and gloom, you know, it, it, it's, it was a tragic story, but in other ways, it's so much about human resilience, you know, and what people put in bad situations do. And, you know, you talk about this, this man, Mr. Parker, you know, um, we haven't really talked about the caregivers, right? So oh, yeah, they, they yeah. were, they also yeah. were, were in many ways heroes. You know, at Carville, they couldn't get anybody to come and take care of uh, these patients. They finally enlisted the daughters of charity, um, sisters who, um, 
quite frankly, they weren't so thrilled about going out into this isolated area, but they ended up going out and they were the nurses who took care of patients at Carville basically for a century and more than a century. You know, those, those daughters of charity out in Carville, you know, they were pretty much abandoned. And so those women had, (laughs) I mean, they just struggled just to, just to get water, just to get medication. And they also eventually inspired and encouraged the patients to fight for themselves because they too knew that this was not a highly contagious disease. Nobody who ever worked at Carville for more than 100 years contracted the disease. That's an astonishing statistic there. I mean, given, you know, the the myth. Right, right. If if nothing else can correct the myth, that that should be, uh, you know, excellent evidence. But what, what is Carville itself like today? What does it look like? It, you know, it doesn't look that different, quite frankly, than it did, I would say, in the 1950s when the federal government had 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 built basically, um, you know, had built dorms for the patients there. Are, um, it's actually quite beautiful. Um, it, so there's still that mansion that you talk about where there was rats, where, where there were rats. I mean, that has been um renovated and is beautiful. It's a big old beautiful white plantation with the with the columns and and, and it's at the entrance to Carville. Um, then behind it there are uh, what became the the dorms for the patients. But but they're quite quite beautiful because they're all connected by these screened in walkways because a lot of the patients had foot problems and they they were in wheelchairs or rode bicycles because that was an easy way to get around. So every building is connected by these long corridors. So as I say, it's quite beautiful. And they're beautiful um, live oak trees that have been there for hundreds of years. Um, and it's right on the river. You cannot, cannot actually see the Mississippi because of the levee, um, but it's right next to the river. It's still a pretty isolated uh, part of the state, a pretty poor area. Uh, oh, it was a poor area of the state, but Carville became a really great place for people who lived in the area to get jobs because it was a federal facility. So people who were able to get jobs there as cooks or lands or, 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 um, uh, caretakers or um, uh, tree, trimmers. Know, t- tree trimmers, right? <laughs> um, it, it 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 was a pretty good deal. And I, I you know, James Carville, um, the uh, political consultant, grew up there, and the town is actually named after his grandfather, who was the oh, postmaster. Oh, interesting. And he told yeah. me he think you know he said everybody in that area went to college because of Carville. Because the fam- everybody could afford to send their children to college, which he said they never, ever would have been able to do. Because it was, as I say, a very poor rural area in southern Louisiana. And he said, you know, we were very proud of this facility because doctors would come from around the world to see what kind of research was being done there. And he said, we used to brag, we had more um, doctors <laughs> per capita than Rochester, Minnesota, where the Mayo Clinic is. Um, so it, it yeah, and, and he is very fond of the institution. He, he is a very strong supporter because he saw it in those years when one, the patients were not forcibly confined, but also they had regained a lot of their um, political influence and, and freedom. 
Thank you, Pam, for sharing your time with us. Loved our conversation as we both have a great interest in the history of medicine. The book again is Carville's Cure, Leprosy, Stigma, and the Fight for Justice. It's on Amazon and also available there on Kindle and Audible. One of the things I like about studying epidemics is that they are like murder mysteries. The disease is the killer, but the disease has many accomplices, often coming in the form of ignorance, hysteria, paranoia, overconfidence, prejudice, xenophobia, racism, and false knowledge, and even religiosity. With every epidemic, these accomplices must be neutralized in order for medical science to have a chance at treatments and cures. Social media has made all these dynamics more lethal than ever. Pick up or download Pam's book. It's a great story told by a masterful storyteller. As I've said many times, there's no greater force in the world than good stories well told. For Beyond Texas, I'm W.F. Strong.